The 11th chapter of the New Testament book of Hebrews is a treatise on faith. And in the 8th verse of that chapter, we read these words, By faith Abraham, when he was called, obeyed by going out to a place which he was to receive for an inheritance, and he went out not knowing where he was going. Today I want to talk to you about fulfilling God's desires. Before we do that, let's join our hearts together in prayer. Father, in these coming moments, I pray that your Spirit would enable me to preach your truth accurately and faithfully. And I pray that you would help each of us to respond to it appropriately, with understanding and with obedience. And as always, Lord, we pray these things for the honor of Christ, praying them in his great name. Amen and amen. And as we listen for God together today, may the Lord be with you. If God's truth can set us free, and Jesus assured us it can, then it follows that Satan's lies have the opposite effect. Spiritual lies lock us up. They prevent us from experiencing what God desires for his people. Now, I recognize that not every follower of Jesus would agree with that statement. There are many who say, because God is sovereign, his desires are always accomplished. But I'm here to remind you, that's not what God said in his word. Scripture employs two different Greek words when it's addressing the topic of God's will. One of those words denotes things that God has decreed, things that God has determined, things like the cross of Christ and the second coming of Christ. And the word indicates that those things are going to happen with or without human cooperation. But the other word that's translated God's will, and the one that we find most frequently used, denotes things that God desires for his creation, for his church, for his world. But things that are not predetermined, they're not set in stone. If they're going to happen, they require the submission and the obedience and the faith of his people. And that's why from the book of Genesis forward, Scripture is filled with examples of God desiring one thing and people doing another. Israel, after the Exodus, is an obvious and easy example. God made his desires known. They were to occupy the land that he had already promised them and already given to them. But God's stated desire couldn't get past their filters of unbelief. Decade after decade of slavery had put those filters of fear and unbelief firmly in place. And years of slavery had eroded their ability to trust God. So instead of moving into the land and putting down roots, they stayed in the wilderness and wandered in circles. And only a few 
subsequently experience what God desired for the entire nation. And that's precisely why we're calling this campaign a faith campaign rather than a capital campaign. Because once God has revealed his desired future for a congregation, once the congregation has affirmed and embraced that vision, the next thing necessary for translating it into a reality is not funding, it's faith. Because faith lays the foundation for funding because our hearts follow our decisions. Now, Jesus made that clear. You'll remember he said, where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Unfortunately, we've been conditioned to read those words and hear the opposite. We assume that we will give to the things that we have come to value. But Jesus said, you will come to value the things to which you give. Your giving leads your heart rather than your heart leading your giving. And so our passion for God's will increases when we invest in it by faith. Faith leads our feelings. It doesn't follow feelings. Second reason we're calling this a faith campaign is because we want everything we do to be pleasing to God. And without faith, it is impossible to please God. That's what Hebrews 11.6 tells us. Why would God say, without faith, it's impossible to please me? I'd like to suggest he said that because faith is intensely personal. It's our practical behavioral endorsement of God's character, of God's honor, of God's credibility. When you step out in faith in response to the leading of the Lord, you are saying by your actions, I believe God can be trusted. I believe God keeps his word. Faith is personal. That's why without it, it's impossible to please God. The third reason we're calling this a faith campaign is because of the way the book of Hebrews defines faith. It defines it as the assurance of things hoped for and the conviction of things that are not yet seen. Now, what does that mean? It means faith isn't based on the resources we have at hand. Faith is based on the resources in God's hands. God's desires are accomplished by people who think outside the box outside the box of their own income, their own resources, their own abilities, their own health, their own life circumstances. If you're going to move in faith, you've got to think outside the box of the things that are already seen, the things that you can already touch, the things that are already in your hands, because that's where you'll find God. God is greater than your resources. I like to put it this way, the God who could not be contained in a tomb will not be confined to our resources. 
The fourth reason we're calling this a faith campaign is because expanded faith positions us for expanded influence. We want to erect some new facilities so that we can expand our ministries. But we will need expanded faith to expand our ministries in those facilities. Three years from now, I want to see us do more than dedicate some new facilities to the glory of God. I want to see us celebrate new faith, deepened faith, new testimonies that have made us stronger so that we can serve God in these days. God recently gave me a new perspective on faith that I want to share with you. If we're going to grow our faith, God reminded me we must be willing to (gasps) gasp. Let me explain why I say it that way. When God instructed Abraham to sell off his business, sell off his home, take his family, take his secure life, and relocate without knowing where he was going, I'm certain Abraham gasped. Scripture doesn't say that, but I don't think God wastes ink on what should be rather obvious. He gasped. And when God later told him to sacrifice his son Isaac that he had waited for so long, don't you think Abraham gasped? If God told me to sacrifice one of my children, I'd gasp. So would you. But on both occasions, he made his way through the gasp, and he obeyed in faith. Now, I've shared many times that my best training for ministry didn't come from Bible college or seminary. It came from watching my father, a very simple man who didn't know any better than to trust God. Dad only possessed an eighth-grade education. And financially, he had been deeply influenced by the Great Depression. If you have relatives who lived through the Great Depression, you know it changed them for the rest of their life. It scarred them. So when as a brand new believer following World War II, God came to him and said, Howard, I want you to leave your secure job with Armco Steel in Butler... And I want you to sell vacuum cleaners door to door on a commission basis. My dad gasped. I know because he told us later. He gasped. And he tried to negotiate a compromise with God. He said, Lord, I'll stay full time at the mill and I'll sell vacuum cleaners part time to supplement our family income. But, you know, God isn't too keen on our suggested compromises. Because spiritual compromise is really just disobedience with a nice title put on it. And so just a week or so after God suggested that compromise, Armco had what was then, in the late 40s, a very rare layoff. And guess whose name was first on the layoff list? God ghetto slapped my dad and got his attention. So dad, with the faith that he had, took a flyer on God and said, God, if you'll help me support my family, I'll share Jesus every time I go into a home. Over the next 32 years, 
God made my father one of the top salesmen in the United States of America. He prospered financially far more than he ever would have at Armco. But more importantly, as he shared Jesus in every home, he led over 3,000 men and women to faith in Christ. And Dad taught us to trust God even when God's initial word makes you gasp. Now, I took those lessons with me into my first pastorate. And while I was there, no surprise, God taught me additional lessons about the role of faith in seeing God's desires accomplished. I was in my second year at my first church when I was asked to be the president of a local alliance campground. Now, it was a volunteer position that could be done in addition to pastoring my church. I was the new kid on the block, so I thought, I'll take my turn, and I accepted the responsibility. I inherited a campground that was in deplorable condition. Two dormitories that should have mercifully been shut down years earlier. And I knew those facilities didn't properly respect God or honor God. So I sought the Lord, and God made it clear, those need to be replaced. But when I presented a proposal to the board, the camp treasurer stood when I was finished and said, gentlemen, that all sounds very nice, but I'm here to tell you it can't be done. I keep the books. This camp barely takes in enough offerings each year to pay our utility bills and keep the doors open. We could never finance a new dormitory. And with that, he sat down. Fortunately, despite his impassioned appeal, the board voted to go ahead in faith, and the dormitory was built. But you need to know that faith will always be challenged, and its fruit will not always be immediately obvious. That summer, as we were holding the 10-day family camp, After eight nights of camp, not a penny of extra offerings had come in, and we had two days of camp left. And as I was walking toward the tabernacle on Saturday night to lead the worship, three pastors pulled me aside and reamed me a new one. They told me, not an extra cent has come in. You have led this camp into financial ruin. And with that, I was left to go in and lead worship. Looking back, I refer to them as Job's comforters. (laughs) And it was tough leading worship with that accusation ringing in my ears. But on that ninth, ninth, ninth night of the camp, one man put in one check that covered the entire amount of the new dormitory. And on the final night of camp, I made that glad announcement, though those three pastors were nowhere to be found. So the following year, believing it was God's will, we built another. And again, that same gentleman, without being asked, covered the amount in full. And the year after I left that camp to come here to Pittsburgh, he donated $150,000 to the camp so they could also build a new worship center debt-free. And when I asked him the reason for his generosity, he said, years ago, God told me he was going to prosper me so that I could be a financial blessing to the camp that needed improvement. But the camp never improved. My offerings were never needed. I've just been waiting. And you see, past leadership had failed to move in faith, so the resources God already had in place for his desires were just sitting there being wasted. 
because of unbelief. And you've got to know, if you'll step out in faith, God's already got what you need set aside for you. But you'll never see it if you don't step out in faith. And I've learned then what I've learned many times since. God always pays for what He orders. The resources necessary for His desires are always in place before we act in faith. But I also learned God never meets a projected need. He meets real needs that exist once we act. So the notion that everything God desires is got to happen simply isn't so. It's not biblical. The truth is, Jesus wouldn't instruct us to pray, Thy will be done, if God's will is always done. If the language of Scripture means anything, most of what God desires to see done hinges upon our faith. It happens when people step past their fears, get outside the box of their own resources, and believe God for things that would be impossible without Him. Because as somebody once said, only the impossible is appropriate for the people of God. That's why we're calling this a faith campaign. And I want you to know, we believe in leadership that practices what it preaches. So we recently asked 60 of our leaders, our elders, our board members, our pastoral staff, and some of our ministry staff, to make the first pledges. They represent 60 households out of over 1,000 households in this congregation. And those 60 households have already made their faith commitment for $1.8 million, almost 20% of the goal, 60 out of 1,000. So we're not asking you to do something we would not do. We're asking you to follow our example as we follow the Lord because we want to fulfill God's desires. And three years from now, we want more than space. We want testimonies. Testimonies that we can pass to our children. Testimonies that we can pass to our grandchildren. I'm able to pass my dad's testimonies to my grandchildren and shape their journey. And we want you to have that same experience. Well, this isn't the WWE, but I'm going to tag John in now to take over. And he's got to talk to you about God's transcendent economy. All right, let's make this legal. There we go. Yeah, Bruno is gone, and (laughs) Dillman and Stanko are taking over. So we really do have excellent leadership in the church. May we never take that for granted. I'm not just talking about Pastor Rock, but all the entities that he mentioned, uh, uh, always working diligently to oversee uh, what God is doing here. Let's just express our appreciation to all of them. Amen. It's an exciting day, exciting time at ACAC. But never before has the world been faced with economic situations and scenarios that we face now. Words and concepts, practices like investments, retirement funds, credit, educational loans, homeowning, flipping houses, online shopping, government spending, stocks, futures lotteries. All these things are new within the last century and probably most of them within the last 40 or 50 years. Our grandparents didn't have to 
deal with these situations. Even Social Security is a reasonably new uh, entity. And so, uh, this, this, and we're conditioned by this. We hear this all the time. Uh, a few years ago, somebody was elected president because the, the theme was, it's the economy, stupid. And we are economic beings, especially in the United States. We, we watch our stuff. And if it's not growing and increasing, there's some, there's some problem and we will take steps to make that happen. Now, we've also been exposed to a term and a concept called the global economy or the global marketplace. For never before have the world's people and nations been tied together like they are now in an interrelated manner. But through all of this, one thing hasn't changed for us as the people of God, and that is that God does not operate by the economic rules of the world, nor is he restricted by the principles of any local or even global economy. God functions in and transfers us into what I am referring to as a transcendent economy. It's, it's separate. It's different. When, when the plagues were on Egypt, when there was darkness in every household in Egypt, there was light in Goshen where the people of God lived. So God is able to maintain his people on one level but while the world spins uh, according to its own axis. And that is one of the messages of Revelation, which we won't get into now. Transcendence, a big word. I know other big words like delicatessen, and, and, but... but <laughs> But transcendent is defined as beyond or above the range of normal or merely physical human experience. And that's the economy that God transfers us to. If God doesn't have it, he'll get it. If he can't get it, he'll make it. God has a different set of rules for you and me. He promises to provide for us and we pray Give us this day our daily bread. So if we're praying for God to give it to us, when you give something to someone, it's a gift. And and I had to have a mind change years ago, even as as, as with a master's in economics, that I did not work to make money. God provided the money, and I worked to extend his will and his kingdom wherever it is that he had me. Now, he may use my company, he may use my organization, but he doesn't need that entity. He can take care of me beyond that. We see where, where, where he sent birds to feed his people. He, he, caused, he caused bread to rain from heaven to take care of his people. You know, when the world considers the church What offends them most, and we have given them often opportunities for offense, but of course it's a a hate relationship, so they're not going to necessarily find what's right. But they look for two things. One is love, and second is generosity. They expect that. They're offended by the mansions and the cars. They they may not be able to articulate it theologically, but they're saying something wrong with the followers of Jesus if they don't have those two values in place. Radical love and radical generosity. Our bread is a gift and not as a result of our ability to work within or even beat the economic system. 
Because God is the source of our economic welfare, God establishes different rules by which we make economic decisions. And some of our decisions are to be driven and motivated not just by generosity, but by radical generosity. That's always been the norm for the people of God. We could use a lot of biblical examples, too, I'm going to share today. There was a famine in the land in the time of Elijah the prophet. There was a Gentile widow who had nothing except a little bit of flour, a little bit of oil. She went out to gather up some sticks. She was going to go home and make a last meal. And then they were going to die of starvation is what she assumed. And so Elijah the prophet intersects with her. And, you know, we wish... We, we, we wish this story sometimes wasn't there because he does what is so repulsive to us that we have seen happen over and over again. Men or women of God in a, coming into a situation and making an outlandish promise. If you just give, God will do this. And we recoil from that. So much so that we can miss the legitimate when it really happens because of the abuses that we've seen. So Elijah meets this widow and says, what are you going to do? She said, we're going to go home, make our last meal in the day. He said, if you'll just make me a little bit of bread with what you have and give it to me. He said, I promise that your flour and your oil will never run out. And she did that. And the promise was true. God took care of her. And Jesus reminded the Jews about this woman's story, sticking a finger in their eye because this woman had faith and she wasn't even part of the covenant community. The second example is Luke 21 where Jesus is at the temple and he's just watching people give. We shouldn't pay attention to what people... Well, tell Jesus that. And suddenly this widow comes and she has two little copper coins and she drops them in the treasury and Jesus perks up. Now, what did he do? Did he go over and scold the, you shouldn't be taking the widow's money. He didn't pull her aside and say, honey, listen, you know, be real. Come on. You're a widow. You just got these two coins. Let me take these back. Guys, it's okay. Just leave her alone. It's okay, honey. Here. No, he commended her. He pointed her out. He said, truly, I tell you, this poor widow has put in more than all the others. All these gave their gifts out of their wealth, but she, out of her poverty, put in all she had to live on. And Jesus is like, wow. He was impressed. When's the last time Jesus was impressed with your generosity? Now, this is my fifth building program I've been involved in, and I've consulted in many more. I witnessed a church in Zimbabwe, Southern Africa, over a period of years, build an $11 million facility in an economy that had 600,000% inflation. But I saw that God was not limited to provide for that project by the local economy because we are in a transcendent economy. It was remarkable. I was, I'd lived there for four and a half years. Every Sunday they'd be auctioning off pies and loaves of bread go for $200. Oh, some people would have been offended. 
But today that, that jewel is used by the whole nation as a convention center. Another even more impressive project was a pastor in Kenya who built a building, $150,000 complex in the middle of nowhere for people who had nothing. Yet when they had the vision and they gave, God took care of the rest. First, first church service. After I got saved, got married, we went on our honeymoon. We come into the church. I come in, there's a whiteboard. And eventually they're taking names and amounts that people are giving towards the building. My wife and I had nothing except our wedding money. We looked at one another. We were on the same page. I stood up. We stood up, gave it all. So what better way to start our married life to invest in something that was related to the kingdom of God? I wish it would have ended there. <laughs> but it seems like I attract building projects like magnets, <laughs> like metal filings. Another time I was telling the Lord how I didn't have anything to give and I saw all my silver dollars in my mind, all the Christmas and birthday gifts, 1869, 1874. They were worth a lot. And I found out how much they were worth because I cashed them in, gave the money. Sold a car one time. It's the only thing I had of worth. Used mass transit for six months. Walked a lot. But I wasn't going to miss out on the opportunity to give. Took second jobs. Had garage sales. Can only wear one pair of shoes at a time. Can only wear one belt. I didn't need 15. We moved 11 times in the first 33 years of marriage, so often our faith lessons involved real estate. Can't tell you all the stories. We don't have time. But I learned during those seasons to ask God to open my eyes to what I wasn't seeing. Because very often I had closed off in my mind opportunities or situations that God could use that I would say, no, that's impossible. You say, well, that's all about houses and cars, and that, this is getting dangerously close to this prosperity stuff. No, first the natural, then the spiritual. Because I was faithful to all those opportunities over the years, four and a half years ago when God spoke to me to make a transition from staff, and I had to surrender 80% of my revenue at 64 years of age, I could do it. Because I knew God would take care of me. Because God can use an organization, but he doesn't need the organization. He's a big boy and he can take care of himself. And where God guides, he provides. And where it's his will, it's his bill. I've been able to take five, four or five hundred people on missions trips. Ninety-five percent of whom, when they came to me, had nothing. They said, there's no way I can go. The issue is, does God want you to go? Yes, then you make the commitment and you watch God provide. See, the one thing Elijah said to the widow is, don't be afraid. That would be the word of the Lord for us. Don't be afraid. See, we love to hear the stories of somebody who wrote, a, oh, he wrote, somebody wrote a $15,000 check to pay for, oh, thank you, Jesus. Oh, thank you, Lord. We go tell our, we tell our friends. But that's somebody else's testimony. What about your testimony? I can do all things through Christ. Really? If you can do all the all things, what are the all things you're doing? 
I've taken offerings on six continents. I haven't seen the principles vary because the kingdom is the same everywhere we go. Our greatest testimonies are the commitments we made for which we didn't know how God was going to take care of it. When I was invited to Afghanistan years ago to be a guest and a lecturer at Kabul University, I didn't have the time or the money, but I said yes, and God provided both. Just this year, we shipped off our 12-ton container to Kenya for more libraries. The day we shipped, six hours before they pick it up, somebody I met 10 years ago sends me an email that his organization is sending us $10,000 for the container. Now, that's my testimony. That's who my God is. And God wants us to enter into that this season as a people. Individually, each one of us following the lead of the, or the, the, the symphony master, but playing our role. Now, in, later in, in the video, uh, uh, Pastor Blaine is going to come and talk about the booklet that you have received or you did receive today. Next to the last pages, we have giving strategies. We have a brochure to help you walk through. What do you think you can do? Well, I won't get my nails done as often. I'll change my own oil. No, that's cool. That's really cool. $35 a month, $50 a month. a year times three years, that's $1,800. That's cool. That's a lot of money. What we're asking you to do is consider doubling it. And there was silence in heaven for half an hour. (laughs) See, if you know where the $1,800 can come from, why not put in more that God has to provide for it to happen? Now, I, it's interesting. I had three people after the first service come up like this. Well, I guess I, I was thinking of going to Israel with you in two years, but not anymore. <laughs> the only thing I can think of is my tax refund. Yeah, God builds his kingdom on your tax refund. <laughs> it doesn't have to be either or. Be it done unto you according to your faith. My goodness, what a track record we have in the Lord. God has never failed us. He has never failed us if he has led us. And the real rub is we're afraid he's not leading us or we're afraid he is. And that's a lot more than I intended. And by the way, don't let your children pass on this opportunity. You need to teach them about the transcendent economy. If they can have faith for Xbox... They can have faith for the hub. When they're adults, they can drive by and say, I was 10 years old and I trusted God for $250. And it's in that building. man who mentored me in financial issues and fundraising named Bill Hout, great man of God. And he, he was just fearless and he knew everybody in the country, I think. He knew who was given to what college and he'd look at our mailing list. I was working for a Christian ministry. We'd go out and we'd do our homework and we knew these people and he'd sit there and say, so-and-so, we'd really like you to consider $150,000 gift over the next three years, $50,000 a year. And I'm just, I'm sweating. He said, you try. We'd go to the next dinner and I'm, you don't want to give $50,000 a year for the next three years, do you? He'd say, John, John, he said, 
Don't ever deprive God's people of the opportunity to give. He said, because if they give, say if they give $1,000, what do you have? I thought it was a trick question. I don't know. He said, they have $1,000. That's what you have. So what do they have? He said, they have the potential for God to bless it 30, 60, 100 fold. He said, you as a leader have to, you have to make sure the ground they're sowing into is good ground so that their seed can spring forth, but don't ever hinder people from giving. Because it's a healthy, spiritual thing to do. Brothers and sisters, I came to ACAC in 2001. My first ever meeting with Pastor Rock was in 2003. I said, I believe we are the right place at the right time with the right message to make a difference in our community and in the world. That's why I'm passionate about letting more people know about what ACAC is doing. Because if you haven't noticed, the Church of Jesus is in trouble. And for all the goofballs who are out there, if we don't help counterbalance that message, people have no option, nothing else to respond to. It's a great opportunity. I don't think anything's changed since the time I came here. Our message and what we represent is more needed than ever before. And if I can contribute to... Toward that end through a building, I'm glad to do it. Let's pray. Father, I come against fear in the name of Jesus. Father, we we, we think of things we'd want to do and then we talk ourselves out of it. But Father, this is not a time for the meek or the timid. This is a time to do what's in our heart to do. And trust that you are with us. Not just in the formulation of the figure, but in the provision of it as well. So Lord, together, we want to we play a symphony for you that will be pleasing in your ears. And will help advance your kingdom. In Jesus' name, amen.